Slava Connection listeners. Happy New Year. New us, new you, new COVID variant. It's all very exciting things today, including this new episode. I was joined by Cullen. We got to speak to Sergei Radchenko. He's a Cold War and post-Cold War historian. He is the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's also a prolific writer. He's written multiple books, and he was a genuine pleasure to talk to. Cullen, what did we talk about? We talked about so much, Lara. Sino-Russian relations, and Sino-Soviet relations, Russia's relations to the West, and our new Cold War we find ourselves in today. You know, there's a Chinese saying, Tao Guangyang Hui, which means bide your time and hide your capabilities and just focus on domestic reform. It's not like Russia does have any problems. Why can't Russia develop a more sensible policy that would aim at building up prosperity domestically? Just say, come on, we have to recognize reality. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Get right into it. Dr. Rachenko, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on here. Finally, we've had quite a few reschedules behind the scenes to get this uh, episode going. Yeah, very happy to to join you. So you're a prolific writer. You cover the history of the Cold War, you know, Soviet relations, atomic diplomacy and the like. But we're curious to hear how you got your start in your career. We actually just chatted off mic that your first taste of the U.S. was here in Texas itself. So what brought you over to Texas? So this was a, a unique opportunity that emerged from the end of the Cold War. I was at that time a, a, a kid living in eastern Russia on the island of Sakhalin, as a matter of fact, not very far from Japan. But of course, Sakhalin was quite isolated. There was very little scope for young people like myself to get out of there, sort of see the world, which is something I always wanted to do until an opportunity came along to travel to the United States on a U.S. government-funded program. I was 15 years old at the time, and it was a competitive thing. You know, I had to apply to get selected, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, This program, which was called FLEX, has uh, long rested in peace as a a result of of, uh, deterioration of U.S.-Russian relations. But for a number of years, it actually allowed thousands of Russian children to travel to the United States and I guess the idea was to expose us to, you know, wonders of freedom and democracy and whatnot. Children were assigned to different host families, and mine ended up being in Texas, in East Texas. So here I came, you know, from Sakhalin Island, from middle of nowhere in Russia to, well, I wouldn't say it's middle of nowhere, but, you know, East Texas was certainly a very different world, even by U.S. standards. But I, I greatly enjoyed it. I, I absolutely had a great time for three three years in East Texas, and they still have very warm feeling for the place. Yeah, three years is quite some time. I know that I believe Russia actually pulled out of the Flex program back in 2014. Yeah, uh, and, and that's horrible. That's horrible. I, I am a, a great supporter of exchange, uh, even at the time of tensions, especially at the time of tensions, when U.S.-Russian relations are in the state of crisis, let people interact, you know, let let children especially travel back and forth, tourists go back and forth to learn more, to understand more about one another. I think that's a useful thing. And, you know, I wish this program continued, but unfortunately, it was a casualty of the general downbreak in the relationship. 
So you got a taste of the United States. Next, what brought you to China eventually? You know, partly has to do with me being or well, growing up in in Russian in Russian Asia, what you would call it. I was born in in a little town on the uh, at the time it was the Sino-Soviet border in in the Russian Far East on that on the Usuri River, which was of course also the site of the 1969 border clashes between the Soviet Union and China. So when I was born there and when I was uh, you know in the early years of my life, there was very little interaction with China, although China was just you know very close, but there was very little interaction. China was seen as the great enemy of the Soviet Union. Then gradually relations began to improve and in 1989 they normalized their relationship now at that time I was already heading out as it were within a few years I would be going to the United States but I still was very interested in China and I wanted to learn more about the culture the language etc so I had a, a rare opportunity while I was studying in the United States. I went to a local college in Marshall, Texas, is where I was. I went to a, a place called East Texas Baptist University. I was there for two years, and then at the end of my second year at East Texas Baptist University, an opportunity came up for students, American students, to go to Hong Kong. Now this is 1998, so right after the transition when Hong Kong went over from British jurisdiction over to Chinese. Jurisdiction happened in 1997. So in 1998, there was this opportunity to go to Hong Kong, and very few people wanted to go. Oddly enough, from Marshall, Texas, nobody wanted to go to Hong Kong. And I thought, you know, this is my chance to go and explore Asia. So I became an exchange student. This time, almost like represent, you know, be an American exchange student going to um, to Hong Kong, and I was there for a year. At which point, I, you know, while I was there, of course, and you know, traveled extensively across China, it was a very different China back then. Night and day, really, you just couldn't, you know, you could not compare both in terms of its level of freedom. There was a lot greater freedom at that time, I think, in my personal opinion, to to uh, do stuff in China. Uh, and at the same time, of course, it was highly underdeveloped compared to where we are now. But anyway, so I had a great time in China in 1998-99. Uh, at which point, I actually went to London to pursue my undergraduate degree there at the London School of Economics, where I majored in international relations and did an undergraduate dissertation on Sino-Soviet relations, which then formed the basis for my PhD, which dealt with relations between China and、uh, the Soviet Union in the 1960s. So I, I'd love to pivot a little bit to the research that you have been doing, especially with Russo-China relations. You've written quite extensively, but you also comment a lot on contemporary events as well. So, as a historian, how have you been approaching current Russo-China relations? What have we been approaching correctly about this? What what have people been sort of misinterpreting? Because there's been so much discussion that it's this alliance of autocracies, it's this marriage of convenience. But you have an interesting perspective in applying the lens of history to it. So, what's your take on it? Well, I think history is hugely important in in understanding Sino-Russian relationship today. Fortunately, we have a lot of commentary out there on on this relationship by people who do not understand, who do not know、uh, the complicated history of the relationship, and therefore, you know, come up with completely unrealistic scenarios about, for example, splitting China from Russia or Russia from China <laughs> and using Russia against China, etc. You know, when you read something like that, you think, you know, do those people really know what this relationship is? How this relationship、uh, relationship has been built up, and um, uh, what uh, what approach both countries have have been taking in recent years? 
of course, learning from their very complicated history. Now, the relationship between China and the Soviet Union was started off quite well in the 1950s when they had a treaty of alliance, which was called Eternal and Unbreakable, but it only lasted for 10 years, right? <laughs> because at the end of, of 1950s, China and the Soviet Union uh, was split up. The treaties continued, well, until 1979, but uh, the alliance itself wasn't was shattered by well there are very various reasons for why the the the, the relationship broke down but by the late 1960s the the two countries were basically close to war and in 1969 I already mentioned there was a, a clash between them uh, that was basically an undeclared war the Soviets even floated prospects of a preventive nuclear strike against China. I don't think they were serious about it, but that certainly alarmed China greatly. And that's actually one of the bigger reasons why the Chinese leaders at the time, Mao Zedong in particular, pursued rapprochement with the United States because they were so afraid of the Soviet Union. And then the relationship was frozen for the you know, throughout the 1970s. This was a lost decade for the relationship in the 1980s. It started to unfreeze. And the reason it started to unfreeze is that both China and uh, the Soviet uh, Union at that time realized that they, that this kind of negative relationship, this kind of strained relationship did not benefit either side and only benefited third parties, i.e. the United States, that could profit then from a bad relationship between the two countries. And so a movement towards rapprochement between the two began as early as 1982 and then intensified. It began under Leonid Brezhnev and Deng Xiaoping. While Deng, Deng Xiaoping was in charge in China and Leonid Brezhnev was in charge in the Soviet Union. Then, of course, Brezhnev died in 1982. There was a continuation of, of this positive relationship. And uh, uh, Gorbachev was the one who ultimately brought about full normalization. Gorbachev and Deng Xiaoping met in May 1989. One of the things that uh, that I find extremely interesting, what, which many people do not realize, is that one of Mikhail Gorbachev's lasting legacies was that normalization of the Sino-Soviet relationship. His other legacy opening to the West has now been reversed by and large. Russia is in a state of confrontation with the West. But his opening to China, on the other hand, has been something that uh, has been quite lasting and something that is, is, is still, still remains in the relationship today. So when we look at the relationship today between China and Russia, one thing to remember is that both sides understand the complicated history of their relations. Both sides understand that a conflict in their relationship is actually not good for either side, and they are not too keen on becoming too close. In other words, theirs is not an alliance like in the 1950s. It is more of an alignment where each side allows the other a certain freedom of maneuver when it comes to their core interests, as it were and doesn't get too worried where when their interests diverge. I'll give you one example of this. In 1959, there was a conflict between China and India over the Himalayas, their border in the Himalayas. They still have this conflict, right? They have unresolved territorial dispute. Now, at the time, the Soviets tried to be neutral. Nikita Khrushchev thought that, uh, on the one hand, the Chinese were their allies. On the other hand, the Indians were friends. He was trying to build up a relationship with the Indians, so he thought, well, I'll just try to stay neutral. The Chinese were so upset by this because, you know, they thought that Khrushchev was betraying the alliance, you know, his responsibility before the Chinese. Now, fast forward to today, because we do not have a formal alliance, the Russians are 
when it comes to you know, tensions in the Sino-Indian relationship, the Russians can sort of stay away and say, well, you know, we're sorry to hear that you have problems, but really we don't want to get involved. And the Chinese allow them this freedom not to get too involved and to remain neutral. And that is actually something that strengthens their relationship today. And that is in stark contrast to what we had in the 1950s. I think both sides have learned the lesson. Shifting gears a little bit, a lot of your work more recently has been looking at some of the less studied pieces of Northeast Asian geopolitics, particularly Mongolia and North Korea as well. I, a lot of the time, I, f- I feel like these places in at least American discourse kind of get subsumed under, well, they're just doing whatever Big Brother tells them to do. But I feel like your research points to a bit more agency for these places. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about what's what's even happening in Mongolia politically. So Mongolia is an interesting place, uh, and the reason I got connected to Mongolia was it was something that had to do with my financial state. That is to say, while I was pursuing my PhD in London, I was basically broke. I was extremely poor, and I could not afford living in London. I just, you know, I didn't have enough money to feed myself, never mind, you know, to pay for my housing, etc. So while I was pursuing my PhD, I thought, well, what else, you know, where else can I go? And while registered at the LSE where I studied for my PhD, I found a way to go and live in Mongolia. So I moved to Mongolia and I was actually writing my PhD while in Mongolia. It didn't really necessarily give me much more in terms of access to resources, although I did learn Mongolian and that was a wonderful it's a wonderful language and it's a wonderful culture. Really enjoyed my time there. Also gave me some insights into Mongolia itself. And I have been writing since on Mongolian politics, on Mongolian foreign policy. Mongolia finds itself in a peculiar place, stuck between two authoritarian neighbors, Russia and China. Yet Mongolia, uniquely among countries of this region, is a democracy. So seeing how that operates in itself is extremely fascinating. Why, when China has not been able to democratize, nor has shown any intention to, and of course, when Russia has been backsliding towards authoritarianism, how is it that Mongolia has been able to preserve democratic form of governance? You cannot even say that they are, you know, a country in transition anymore. They've, you know, they've been, they've had democratic elections. They've had changes of presidents and parliaments and the elections have been free and fair, certainly by Russian standards, as it were. So Mongolia is really a remarkable case. And uh, I have been, you know, fascinated by, by this and I have been looking into Mongolian politics and history ever since. Now, another interesting thing about Mongolia is, of course, seeing how they maintain their freedom of maneuver when they're so dependent on their neighbors. Most of Mongolian exports go to China. Mongolian economy is based on natural resources, more more or less. There's a lot of extraction of copper and coal, and that uh, product all goes to China. Now, the Russians supply fuel to Mongolia, so it's highly, highly dependent on its two neighbors. They would have huge leverage over Mongolia, and yet somehow it has been able to play one against the other and both against the West and maintain a relative independence of foreign policy, which is quite, you know, quite remarkable and uh, uh, something interesting that I that I still follow. I'd actually love to touch more just on some of the more recent research that you've been doing, uh, especially I noticed in that you've been discussing that in the recent years, the Kremlin has released quite a lot of uh, Soviet era archival documents 
which I'm sure is like a treasure trove for historians. So how has that been informing your research? What, have, what else have you been working on recently? So I'm obviously a historian and, and what what do historians love most? That is, you know, it's going to the archives and digging up documents. You know, this is our bread and butter. We just can't, we, we, can, we cannot resist. We cannot resist this prospect <laughs> of going to the archives and spending uncounted hours in the company of, of documents. Unfortunately, while I was working in my PhD and for many years, Russia was not a great place to do archival research. After a brief period of openness in the early 1990s, Russia basically closed off. There was very little to be had. You would have pieces, you know, scraps of documents here and there that you would try to string. Hence, a new type of historian, international Cold War historian emerged. I was, you know, I was one of the one of the people involved in that new direction of international history research, which was called multi-archival research. Multi-archival here means research in different countries and not just Russia. So I would go to Mongolia and explore their archives, for example, to see what they had on Russia, what they had on China. I would go to other countries in Eastern Europe, for example, where there was greater openness. I would go to even, you know, as far as Myanmar to dig up documents on the Cold War. A very adventurous, great fun, etc., etc. I would get a lot of documents, which I then would use for my research. Then something happened. In the early 2010s, so around... 2012 2013 russia suddenly opened up archival that is counterintuitive because russia has been closing down in practically every other way yeah there's less and less freedom of speech there's less and less freedom of the media and yet on the archival front there was a massive declassification effort and uh, new documents that reflect on soviet foreign policy were suddenly made available to historians like myself and anybody else who cares to go in fact if you go to the russian archives today you generally find that there's nobody there there's nobody there even though there's a huge availability of documents just absolute avalanche oh the, you're buried under documents you just never have even the time to read them and also they allow you to take photos of them where in the past you would have to write them write every word down and you could not you would have to spend months and years there to process stuff whereas now you can take lots of lots of photos and then read them at home so the opportunities for research are astonishing and we have so much evidence now on on different aspects of soviet foreign policy which is my field of course that we can basically rewrite the Cold War. We can we can go to every crisis of the Cold War, you name it, from the early Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, anything. And there's just, there we go, there's a sea of evidence there and new untapped documents that nobody has seen or nobody even cares to look at now because it seems that, that there's less and less, I don't know why, but there's, uh, there's less scholarly interest, it seems, in the Cold War, even as uh, the Cold War has returned in some ways. So that is a that is a, a contradiction. But I have exploited that to the utmost and I have been back to Moscow. I had to unfortunately cancel my various trips to places like Klaus and, and Myanmar to, to dig for documents. As much fun as that was, now I just cannot afford that anymore when there's so much stuff at your doorstep that just completely changes our perspective on key events of the 20th century. 
I'm, I'm curious to hear that, one, it is very unusual that they release so much information, but two, that no one seems to be sort of taking the bait and, and delving into it like you are, which is almost in contradiction with the general mindset right now in Russia of this glorification of, of Stalin, of that era, of looking at it more, more positively. You would think that more people would be interested in that, but I guess it does reveal that darker underbelly of what was happening during the Cold War era. I mean, when I say that there's little interest in the in in the reading rooms, what I mean by that is there's there seems to be fairly little interest externally. Now internally, I think the interest has been sustained, and but of course they're you know they're the same people sitting there that have been sitting there for thirty years. They still come to their to the archival room, you know, people from the institutes in Moscow, and they go through the documents and maybe they find something and publish their articles. But what I mean is there seems to be less interest. Or perhaps less opportunity. Well, I think that's that's maybe the reason. It it becoming it's becoming more difficult to travel to Russia. If you're an American now, going to Russia is is a pain. Just as for a Russian, going to the United States is a pain now. I mean, they, they basically closed down the embassy. Well, they didn't close down the embassy, but the consular section has been closed down. So now if you're a Russian, if you want to get a visa to go to the United States, you know, you better be an oligarch because it'll be very expensive, very difficult, and it's 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 out of reach for normal people people, as it were. So uh, because of that, because the the people to people relationship is breaking down, I think that has also affected academic exchange. And I think maybe less students are going there or less researchers are going there. Be it as it may, but when, you know, obviously COVID has played a huge role in the last couple of years, nobody's been going anywhere. But uh, you know, I'm, it, we may see change uh, in this situation. I hope, or uh, given where uh, things are going with the relationship, it's probably a futile hope that that anytime soon we'll have a revival of uh, of academic exchange. But when it does revive, there's a lot of new stuff that people will have to take in and uh, analyze and, and reflect on history. You've recently been looking at NATO in the Cold War and the legacy of Cold of NATO today, which feels incredibly pertinent. There's been a lot of discussion of, of NATO in the news recently with developments in, in Ukraine. And I'm kind of curious what NATO looks like in these Russian sources, or even more generally, um, you know, your, your thoughts on the history of NATO during the Cold War and, and now its substantial history after. Well, the Soviet view of NATO is is very consistent, has been very consistent uh, and not terribly self-reflective. And that is they have always seen NATO as a threat. Uh, they have always seen themselves as being on the defense and, and certainly did not, you know, never considered the Soviet Union could appear aggressive to anyone. So they could not quite understand why NATO was even needed. So there, and by there, I mean uh, Soviet leaders, their you know, consistent purpose has been to somehow split up NATO or break up NATO. Uh, that is an effort that they have applied themselves to for much of the Cold War, certainly since NATO was created in 1949. Uh, the, the Soviets have been trying to break it up. Now, it would have probably fallen apart on its own by now, were it not for the Soviets pursuing uh, quite aggressive policies and shooting themselves in the foot. Because every time, you know, you have a crisis in NATO or, you know, people are starting squabbling among themselves, the Russians or the Soviets before them do something stupid. And that creates great solidarity among allies to oppose Russia and, you know, give NATO a new raison d'etre, a reason for being. So that is a consistent pattern for the Soviet and later Russian leaders. Now, an interesting difference and a change in the pattern came in the late 1980s. Uh, with Mikhail Gorbachev trying to rethink the Cold War 
trying to pull the Soviet Union out of the Cold War and trying to reevaluate in this context the role of alliances, including NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Now, his idea, of course, was to uh, dismantle alliances. This is what he wanted. And in, in, in many ways, this was consistent to the Soviet approach prior to that, although the Soviets were slightly hypocritical when it came to making real concessions on their own before Gorbachev. But with Gorbachev, they became much more serious about dismantling alliances winding down the Warsaw Pact and winding down NATO. But what Gorbachev discovered, of course, in 1989-1990 was that although his reforms were welcomed by the West and he was personally appreciated by people like uh, George Bush Sr. and by uh, various Western European leaders, there was no real intention on the part of the United States to wind down NATO. They thought that Gorbachev had lost the Cold War and you know he had no right to demand anything of the United States when it came to NATO. And of course, NATO was crucial for the United States in terms of its interest in keeping itself anchored to Western Europe. This is something that George George Bush Sr. wanted very much. And he worried that especially that uh, Gorbachev would strike a deal with Helmut Kohl of West Germany, where Gorbachev would allow for German reunification to take place and Kohl would, in, in response, would agree to leave NATO, which would basically undermine NATO, effectively destroy it. So there was a lot of back and forth about NATO, especially as um, uh, East Germany collapsed and was taken over by West Germany. The question came about, well, what do you, you know, how do you deal with NATO? Because obviously West Germany was a part of NATO and East Germany was not. And it was in this context that you had that famous not one inch to the East pledge or promise that was briefly floated by uh, Secretary of State Baker in a conversation with Gorbachev, which the Russians now have made a, a great use of. They consistently have argued that they were being promised that NATO would not enlarge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the promises were broken and therefore Russia has been put against the wall. It's in the corner, et cetera. So that is part of the of Putin's narrative. Now, if you look at the archival record, you'll see that actually the matter is much more complicated. Baker did mention that there would not be enlargement in real terms into East German in, in East Germany is what I'm trying to say. But the interesting thing is Gorbachev continued to act as if no offer was made. And in fact, even when Baker made that offer, he later took it back because it turned out that in the United States, Bush would not endorse it. So the Soviets continued to act as if there was no real deal. And, you know, the archival record is pretty clear in the sense that there was no real deal. So maybe some kind of offer was made. But there was no Soviet acceptance of this offer. Gorbachev did not accept the offer. So I think the archival record is pretty clear. But what's interesting there is once it becomes clear that the Warsaw Pact is collapsing and that the Soviets, um, you know, that Germany is going to be reunified, it's going to be part of NATO, Gorbachev was increasingly running out of options. I mean, he started with this idea of common European home where the Soviet Union would be anchored in Europe. And now he was finding himself pushed out of Europe in many ways. And he was worried about that. He even in May 1990, he even applied for Soviet membership. Well, not officially. He asked, he, he floated that idea with Baker. He said, how about if we join NATO to you know, which Baker ignored, of course, as he would, because you know, Soviet membership in NATO would basically undermine NATO from his perspective. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Russians continued to fancy themselves as a part of NATO, as part of Yeltsin's outreach and his his effort to to become closer to the West. Uh, but of course, that was not going to happen. And instead, you had 
extension of NATO enlargement uh, into Eastern Europe and Poland, uh, Hungary and the Czech Republic joined NATO, which then contributed to Russian fears and, and resentment and contributed to the built-up of nationalist sentiment in Russia directed against the West. I find it fascinating to look back on history and see that, indeed, with the negotiations with Gorbachev, the Clinton-Yeltsin Partnership for Peace discussions that were happening in the 90s, has really stuck around and this idea of promises being broken continues in a lot of official languages from the Kremlin. We saw that kind of in the uh, very contentious list that they released last month of putting down these effectively these demands that they knew weren't going to be met. But how much of a legitimate threat is NATO to Russia? They keep saying that it is. They keep saying that they want to guarantee their own security. But how much would it actually threaten Russia if, say, Ukraine were to join NATO? How much would that actually hit the Kremlin? Well, you know, there are two ways of looking at this. One way is to say, well, yeah, I mean, the Russians have a case here in the sense that obviously there is a military alliance next to their borders. It's a, it's a very strong military alliance. And obviously it is directed against Russia. I mean, who else is it directed against? You know, before, for some years, NATO was sort of floating in, in great uncertainty as well. What is, you know, what was the mission of NATO? For some years, it was not clear. You know, is it, was it to fight wars in Afghanistan? Well, now it turns out there is is a clear mission and that is is obviously directed against Russia. So because of that the Russians have been complaining about it. Their concerns go back to the 90s. They were worried about the the way that NATO dealt in unilaterally with with Serbia in the 1999 bombing of Yugoslavia following the Kosovo crisis. The the feeling in Moscow was well, you know, today today it's Belgrade and tomorrow it's going to be Moscow. So you, you can you can objectively see that they have reasons to be worried and, and, and reasons to be somewhat paranoid. On the other hand, it is also clear that the regime Putin's regime is using the threat of NATO instrumentally to boost his own legitimacy at home. I mean the Russians have always had that problem <laughs> at, the, the, at the elite level, the lack or absence or deficit of legitimacy in the absence of free and fair elections. Where do you get legitimacy from? You get legitimacy from standing up to the West or from partnership with the West. That's actually one of the things that I'm one of the themes that I'm exploring in my new book that I'm um, hoping to finish in, in the next couple of months. It's a, it's a major project that I've been working on for 10 years. But in the book, I look at this question of political legitimacy for the Soviet leaders throughout the Cold War. And I find that for them, their uh, you know, underlying motivation in foreign policy was has always been recognition by the West. But the question is recognition is what and recognition you know, specifically by whom. And on the question of recognition is what, we come to this difficult question of partners or adversaries. You know, obviously the Soviets have always wanted to be recognized and the Russians as partners of the West. You can think back about, for example, uh, you know, the, the joy that Stalin felt from hosting Roosevelt and Churchill and Yalta and how that contributed to his, his perception of legitimacy. Or you can uh, reflect on how Khrushchev, for example, went to meet with President Eisenhower in 1959 and uh, developed that so-called spirit of Camp David. That was important for Khrushchev and for his sense of legitimacy which he then sold to his colleagues domestically. The great example, of course, is Brezhnev and his partnership with Nixon. 
you know, he really thought that that it was possible to overcome the Cold War and just have this condominium between the United States and the Soviet Union to manage the world, especially the Middle East and many other problems. Now, some of that proved to be uh, rather uh, naive because there was the underlying tone of competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. So the condominium proved a short lift, but uh, the Soviets clearly entertained hopes in this regard. So they've always wanted to be partners of the West. I mean, that applies even more to Gorbachev, even more to Yeltsin, of course, who wanted that partnership with the West. But if the partnership does not deliver, if it falls short somehow, then there's the other option of recognition as the adversary of the West. And that is where you have Putin tapping into this legitimacy narrative about Russia standing to the West, opposing NATO, opposing you know, threats from NATO, etc. So the threats, objectively, from, from the Russian perspective, they're obviously there. Because you've got a military alliance that is directed against Russia. It's not, not a threat. Of course, it's some kind of a threat, right? But then you can amplify it for your domestic purposes. Uh, so in this sense, you could almost take a some, somewhat cynical view here in the sense that although Putin says that he really opposes NATO enlargement, etc., etc., but actually he kind of benefited from it for his the purposes of his, his, his domestic discourse, because then he can stand up, you know, tall and proud and say, look, we've opposed NATO and so on and so forth. So that is an interesting paradox as far as Russia is concerned. You know, I'm obviously not a great fan of the regime in Russia, and I have been quite critical of Russian foreign policy for a variety of reasons. I, I personally think that a more sensible Russian foreign policy would not need to make enemy of NATO and would not need to worry about NATO enlargement because for better or worse, you know, NATO enlarged into Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe is actually a decent place to be compared to the places where NATO did not enlarge. In fact, this was one of the rationales for NATO enlargement in the 1990s to avoid a situation like in the 1930s where you had toxic nationalism, chaos, gray areas in Europe, which then allowed various dictators and, you know, um, aggressive forces to expand. NATO and uh, NATO enlargement was an effort to stabilize Eastern Europe and to 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 anchor it within kind of free world, if you, if 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 I'm allowed to use this term from from the Cold War. And so so in this sense, you know, Russia having stable prosperous, democratic neighbors anchored as they are in NATO. Is that bad for Russia? Well, not really. Come on. You know, I think if, objectively speaking, this is actually quite good. It's quite fine. It's quite fine. But this is not how things are seen in Moscow, right? So if you, that's, you know, that's the issue with narratives. You've got different narratives and they all have logic. You know, you look at the Russian official narrative, say, well, yeah, I mean, it does have its kind of internal logic. You can see how it makes sense. Obviously, you know, I've just presented to you a very different narrative about a much better relationship that could be between Russia and the West that also has, you know, its own internal logic and they don't really speak to each other at the moment. Your hypothetical better Russian foreign policy, would that also probably include not having hundreds of thousands of troops currently amassed at the Ukrainian border. Yeah, I mean, a hypothetically better Russian foreign policy would be to do what the Chinese have done under Deng Xiaoping. And that is, you know, there's a Chinese saying, Tao Guang Yanghui, which means bide your time and hide your capabilities and just focus on domestic reform. It's not like Russia doesn't have any problems. Yeah, Russia is full of problems domestically. 
solving those problems requires a reasonable foreign policy deconflicting with the West, etc. This is not what Putin is doing at the moment. He obviously is still full of geopolitics. You can be full of geopolitics and then, you know, your own country and then uh, is a dump, you know, and this is not something that's good for Russia. You know, we look at Russia and look at Switzerland. Where is quality of life better? I would I would say quality of life is probably much better in Switzerland and it's a much smaller country yeah, than Russia. So why can't Russia develop a more sensible policy that would aim at building up prosperity domestically? integration with the West, opening towards the West. I mean, frankly, it obviously, it's not just Russia. Yeah, It's not just Russia. Russia, of course, bears a huge responsibility for what has happened through from the 1990s. There were lots of turning points. And, and, and I would not want to blame Russia's problems on the West. I think we've done it to ourselves. Yeah, there's this part of Russian opinion that sort of blames, tends to blame things on the West. Oh, yeah, we're not given enough aid or, you know, those advisors from the West, they misled us, et cetera. I don't buy this. You know, look, we, we are the makers of our own misfortune. That's the problem. But I would also say that there is also lack of appreciation in the West of Russia's difficulties. And you can see it throughout the 90s, obviously throughout the transition, I think, there was not enough attention to Russia in many ways and not enough in the way of efforts to integrate, to bring Russia closer to Europe. Russia was kind of being pushed out from Europe in many ways. Yeah, it was, it was still, it was seen as the outsider. Uh, and even now, when we talk about NATO enlargement, you know, we talk about, you know, Ukraine and Georgia becoming part of NATO. But nobody talks about Russia becoming part of NATO. But the Russian intellectuals, you know, Russian liberals in the 1990s talked about that because they wanted to be part of a common security space. Why is it that? Why is it that Russia is the bear in the woods? You know, why is it always being confined to some kind of a lair uh, and being being pushed out from this kind of spaces? There is no answer to this. There is no answer. Obviously, part of it is attributable to Russia's own behavior. But uh, I would not want to blame Russia exclusively. You mentioned previously in sort of the Western approach to Russia and China that driving a wedge between them at this point is is not really feasible. It's it's not really going to happen. So what would be a better way to sort of approach this this relationship that is ostensibly working currently for the both of them? Like, is, is there something the West should do? Should they just back off? Like, what what are the options here? Well, there are very few options, and the reason that I say that it would not make sense for the West to try to exploit that. Anyway, Look, Beijing obviously is, you know, it's its key concern now is the West and Russia. As a, Russia also is more mainly concerned about the, its relationship with the West. So they are, in this sense, there are objective reasons for them to try to maintain fairly positive dynamic in their own relationship based on a very pragmatic understanding of each other's interests. And also there's the economic side to the relationship. Of course, we should not forget that, uh, that Russia, uh, you know, China is Russia's number one trade partner. And um, that has helped Russia evade Western sanctions and whatnot. You know, this, this is, this is certainly a key factor. There has been a fear in the West, or rather in, you know, not a fear, but even almost like an expectation that, you know, that China would would potentially expand into Siberia at Russia's ex- expense or something like that. And, you know, there would be massive migration into the Russian Far East. That is fanciful. Now, the Ch- there's no such thing at the moment. You know, the Chinese are not interested in taking over Siberia and, you know, annexing or something like that. Uh, so that is another factor that we have to keep in mind. They have, they've managed to solve their border problems. I started by talking about border problems between China and Russia in 1969. They've actually settled all of that now. Their border is peaceful. It's fully demarcated. There's no disagreement whatsoever. 
And, you know, for China, you know, people have said, well, Russia has become China's junior partner. Well, maybe that's true. But China values this partnership. It values it greatly because Russia is the only real quasi ally that China has, except for North Korea. And you don't want to worry about North Korea. Uh, so Russia, Russia, for that reason, is, is very important to China. And the Chinese have been quite careful, quite careful in their approach to Russia in order to show respect and not to upset the Russians. And you can see this from the Chinese reaction to the recent Russian intervention through the Collective Security Treaty Organization in Kazakhstan. So the Russians, on, you know, basically in, in one day have decided to send forces to Kazakhstan on the request of the Kazakh president, Tokayev. You know, the Chinese, were they consulted? You know, who, who asked the Chinese? The Chinese obviously have their economic interests in Kazakhstan. And in general, you know, Central Asia has been a place of contestation between China and Russia, but within bounds, within bounds. Both countries are interested in stability in the region and both are quite interested in, you know, aligning their interests in that area. So even though Russia almost, you would say, brutally asserted its influence in Kazakhstan in the way that China could never even do, the Chinese have basically accepted that, you know, they accept this. And, and that is a great example of China deconflicting itself from Russia and, and trying to avoid any kind of you know, situation which would lead to tensions, which would potentially uh, cause a breakdown in the relationship because they understand that the relationship with both is very, very important to both countries. I would see myself as a fairly pro-Western Russian. Yeah, I, I'm quite liberal and I don't approve of the current foreign policy or domestic policies of the current Russian government. However, if let's say, you know, Putin disappeared or you know, dropped dead or something, you know, if there's a new Russian government, let's say I was asked to recommend a course of action with regard to China, I would say Russia needs to do everything possible to maintain a good relationship with China. It is in Russia's national interests, objectively. There's no way around it. It doesn't benefit Russia by you know, any stretch of imagination to quarrel with China because, you know, it's it's its its huge neighbor. And it's just, you know, it's got it's it just, you know, you have to manage this relationship properly. So that is something that I think Russian policy elites understand. Now, that does not mean that they are blind to certain problems with Chinese foreign policy behavior. And there doesn't mean that there are no tensions in the relationship. Of course, there are all kinds of tensions all the time over, you know, minor issues, etc. But I think strategically so far, both sides have understood that they don't need to have a conflict and they've, they've been able to um, sort themselves out in this way. So what the West then needs to understand is that it cannot really pull them apart. But it's interesting that when there is this discussion in Washington about, oh, OK, let's do something. Let's just go easy on Russia so that it can, you know, we can help it break away from China. Uh, that is actually appreciated in Moscow. Why? Well, of course it would be. Of course, they would say, OK, yeah, that just raises our weight with the Chinese. Obviously, this is great for us. So, you know, it, it's the, the policy is, is you know, obviously benefits Moscow, but I doubt that it will have any actual practical, practical consequences for, for this relationship. So I would not focus on trying to break up the alliance or alignment. There is no alliance. There's just alignment between China and Russia. I would not try to break it up. Instead, what I would focus on is building the relationship with Russia 
on its own terms, because Russia is not a card that you want to play against China. Russia is a player on its own terms. Uh, it is a nuclear power. A strategic dialogue is hugely important. Still, you know, the fate of the world depends on it. The fate of Europe still depends on how this relationship with Russia is worked out or is not worked out. So one of the problems that we've had in recent years is there has been a focus in Washington, you know, on kind of you know, moving towards China and ignoring Russia. And I mean, that has been OK. This is not just a Biden thing or, you know, it, for some years we have seen a reduction, for example, in the amount of funding available for Russian studies. As we know, Russia has been kind of neglected because for some time it was seen as as a, as a declining power, as upper volta with nuclear or nuclear missiles. That was the name sometimes given to Russia or, you know, Obama would call Putin a kid in the back of the classroom and, you know, he, there were some regional player that he doesn't doesn't really have any influence, etc. Well, here it goes again. You know, obviously everybody's talking about Russia on a daily basis. So Russia is a huge issue and it has to be taken seriously and it has to be engagement and not just, okay, yeah, let's just let's just see if we can give the Russians a few carrots so that they hell and then, you know, go deal with China because that's not going to work. So engagement, focus on strategic dialogue, efforts to revive people to people contact, efforts to, you know, roll back the various problems that we've had in terms of, you know, closure closure of consular sections and whatnot, you know, allowing people to have a better dialogue. All of that is hugely important for the future of of the relationship and for, you know, the future of the world, I would argue. Then in light of that, what place do do sanctions have here? Because the Biden administration released like a whole list of threats in, in light of the, the talks that are currently occurring about Ukraine, about Russia being in Ukraine, that they're prepared now to hit them with a whole slew of, of sanctions. Is, is that the right approach? Is sanctions something that we should still be considering? <laughs> you know, sanctions are an interesting subject. There's criticism of sanctions by various people without really understanding of what sanctions mean. People say, oh, sanctions don't work. Sanctions don't work. Look, you know, Russia has failed to return Crimea, so therefore sanctions do not work. I would say sometimes actual sanctions do work, but not in the way that we think they work. So there are two things about sanctions in relation with Russia. So first of all, sanctions are much better policy than the other two alternatives. The other two alternatives are going to war, with Russia, nobody wants that, or do nothing, which is bad for your credibility. So when you have on the one hand, you know, do nothing or war, actually doing sanctions, it seems like to be you know, a reasonable proposition. So that's one thing about sanctions. And the other is that, this, you know, sanctions may have uh, some kind of a deterrent effect, but we don't know. Because obviously, you know, if let's say an invasion doesn't happen, we don't know. Okay, we have huge uncertainty. Let's say Russia does not invade somebody. Okay, the question is, did it not invade somebody because of sanctions, because it was felt threatened by the West, or maybe threat of new sanctions? Or did it not invade somebody because it never intended to invade somebody in the first place, right? That is a unknowable problem. We cannot know how to sort this out. You can have 
10 advisors advising the president on both sides of this debate. The fact is, we just don't know. I doubt even Putin knows when he makes his decisions, what is the exact combination of factors in his decision making? Is it, you know, is he being deterred from doing something or is he being, it just, he just feels that this, you know, it's an overstretch and Russia should not go there and should not do this. So in this sense, you know, sanctions are a flexible instrument. Obviously, they're also something that that can bring the relationship down on a very, very long term basis. And we know that, for example, one of the reasons the detente crashed crashed during the Soviet period. Uh, in the 1970s was that there was a a pressure in coming from the US Congress to curb trade uh, with the Soviet Union as a part of the so-called Jackson-Vanek Amendment, which if the Soviet Union did not allow Jewish immigration, right? So that is actually something that, but, you know, the interesting thing about Jackson-Vanek is that after that, the Soviets actually you know, first of all, the Soviets actually curbed immigration even more after Jackson Panic was actually implemented. So it was the it had the opposite effect of the one intended. But after that, even after the Soviet Union collapsed, Jackson Panic actually remained in place. And that shows just how difficult it is to overcome some of those sanctions. They get stuck and they are just forever in a place and they hurt the relationship and they don't serve any ostensible purpose. So that is, you know, that is an issue. Right now we have a bunch of sanctions in place against Russia. Is there scope for eventually lifting the sanctions without losing credibility or without, you know, signaling that, that, well, it was okay for Russia to take over Crimea? I don't know. I don't know if there's some way to um, start lifting sanctions and some, or at least promise the lifting of sanctions in return for more reasonable behavior. Maybe there's some kind of de-escalation in terms of sanctions can be achieved. And some Russian specialists have actually argued that this is what should be done. In fact, Mitri Trenin, who you probably know as a fantastic specialist at Moscow Carnegie, argued years ago already that, that there should be an exchange of you know, the eventual Western recognition of Crimea, uh, Crimean takeover in return for Russia's recognition of Eastern Ukraine as part of Ukraine. And obviously, this did not happen. And there are all kinds of reasons why it might not happen, not least because of you know voices in the West and in Ukraine itself that aggression should not be rewarded. But then there's also something called reality, right? There's something called reality and reality bites. And then the reality is Russia isn't you know, controlling Crimea. And is it possible, is it remotely possible that any Russian government whether Putin or, you know, Putin drops dead and, and there's a miracle and Navalny comes to power, you know, will Navalny return Crimea to Ukraine? There's no way this is not going to happen. Yeah, everybody understands that. I hope, hopefully people understand that. If they don't, they need to look into the Russian narrative and understand how this narrative internally works. So it's not going to happen. So, you know, the recognize, recognizing reality is, is, is the foundation of reasonable politics, you know. And and I always find it difficult as a historian, as just a person, I, I swing between realism and idealism. A part of me is so realistic, you know, I just say, come on, we have to recognize reality. And there's another part of me say, no, 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 but look, let's try to build a better reality. You know, you know let's try to spice it up somewhere and we'll maybe we'll get to a better future somewhere somehow. And I, I have to say that usually realism is the, is the one that wins out in the end. You know, a part of the idealistic part of me goes on for a bit and then the realist part kicks in and says, you know what? 
It's realism stupid. <laughs> I mean, in, in this time of uncertainty, you have to kind of find a way through this fog somehow. And I, I feel like realism definitely wins out most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's hope that both sides in this Russian Western uh, tensions, you know, controversy can find a realistic way forward. I mean, both sides have to understand that you cannot have in, in this world, you know, you should not have zero sum games. That just doesn't work. You have to have have a compromise of some kind, but both sides have to understand that you have to find some middle ground, because without finding middle ground, uh, you're just going to have a conflict. You know, uh, there's a there's a well-known view of Russia that the Russians only understand force, which is perfectly reflect also Russian equivalent of that, that the West only understands force. And when both sides think that the other side only understands force, as a result, you have a conflict and we don't want to have that. I mean, I think that's a perfect place to stop. On an uncharacteristically upbeat note. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to, uh, to have joined and let me know what else I can do. <laughs> the Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.